One of the things that I notice in Parashat Bo is a refrain about memory. It's really, in a way, all about our collective memory of liberation from slavery. And the terms of memory appear throughout the parasha. For example, in Exodus chapter 12, in verse 13, right after it says, the blood of the houses where you're staying shall be a sign for you. When I see it, I will protect those houses. The Pasach will happen so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then it immediately says, this day shall be to you one of a zikaron, of a memory, of a remembrance, of the practice of memory. You shall celebrate it as a festival to Adonai throughout the ages. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all time. We have as well the commandments for matzah, for the holiday. And in each of these cases, memory is then connected to an action, an institution that will become part of this world. And they are paired together. And in stark language, the parasha tells us, the Torah tells us, and if you do not remember and then do the actions that are dictated, you're cut off from your people. The rabbis, of course, understand that being cut off from your people not as an active case where we exile people actively, but rather spiritually, that when one does not do that, when one cuts themselves off from memory and the actions dictated by memory, they are themselves doing the spiritual act of cutting themselves off from their people. And then we get chapter 13 in the Tefillin. When your children ask you questions, you shall say to them and recount this memory. And this shall serve to you as a sign on your hand and as a zikaron on your forehead in order that the teaching of Adonai may be in your mouth, that with a mighty hand, the Lord freed you from Egypt. It's not what I normally think of as the reason for tefillin. Here, it's connected in a way to the Seder. When a child asks you, why are you remembering these things? The language is quite ambiguous. We're not sure what it means. It's cryptic. This is a sign on your hand and a memory on your forehead, a remembrance on your forehead, in order that, and then the action is, so you speak Torah, that it's in your mouth and the speaking takes place. And then somehow this business about your arm, it is that with a mighty hand, the Lord freed you from Egypt. Rashi, of course, has to tell us how we make sense of this. Is this tefillin or is this not? The context doesn't seem to be about boxes. And interestingly, I think there's a play on language that he does that just as the Lord protected the houses of the Israelites and the word houses recurs and recurs, so we call the boxes of the tefillin houses. Rashi writes, this business of letotafot in one section, but in another it says uh, zikaron, remembrance or memory. Well, the totafot are the two boxes. And we understand that that's what we mean by this word memory, which occurs in the other verse, because they're in parallel. But what is the action associated with them? The Torah says the action is speaking, and it corresponds to the term zikaron, because whoever sees tefillin bound between the eyes will remember that they were saved from slavery. And so when you see, I guess you're seeing someone else wear tefillin, then you remember 
we were saved from slavery and you will speak about it. And so this will spread Torah and God's intentions. So important is the connection of memory to Jewish life that a memory is tied to the causing of action. We of course say, never forget as Purim is coming up to erase Haman's memory and all of what that means, the connection to evil in the world. And we're reminded of course, never forget the Holocaust and what actions that causes us to take in this world. And this connection in memory is so foundational that it is actually the basis of the Rosh Hashanah Torah portions and the liturgy. On the one hand, I can say when it comes there, it's the birthday of the world and we're celebrating birth, like uh, with the first day readings about Sarah getting pregnant with Yitzchak, but that doesn't really answer what's going on with the second day readings of the Akedah and Avraham binding Yitzchak. Probably more accurately, both, both Torah portions are cases of zikronot, of taking zikaron remembrance and forcing it on God. As we say in the Musaf liturgy, God, we are forcing you to remember. Remember the Akedah, remember what Avraham did, remember what Yitzchak did, remember what Sarah did, maybe remember what Hagar did. Remember all of that. Remember the deeds of our ancestors and therefore you are bound causally to do the action of giving us mercy. We are forcing memory on God, God's self and holding God accountable in the way God holds us accountable. It struck me this year, maybe more than any other year, how this parsha tells us that things like to fill in that I often take out of the context of remembering slavery. Nevertheless, each of these pieces from the maror to the seder to maybe even the mezuzah itself is the blood on the doorpost, that all of these pieces are about grounding you in the memory of slavery. And what strikes me this year is how so much of what's going on in the last couple of years in our lives in this country is trying to remind us of the importance of the connection of the memory of slavery to what we need to do in this country. When I grew up, I thought the reason for the second amendment about the well-ordered militias was sort of so the rebels could fight the tyranny of England in the Revolutionary War. Later, I was only awakened to the connection of well-ordered militias in the Second Amendment to its original context. The original context being Virginia militias who were charged with capturing and often abusing runaway slaves. It was a memory of slavery that wasn't connected to my understanding of America. Today, I imagine there's going to be a lot of talk about the filibuster. Well, you know, Lynn asked me yesterday, so why don't you tell the kids about the filibuster and fill me in? I was like, you know, Jimmy Stewart standing up there and saying, when you have a good cause, you're going to block a grave injustice from happening because you're going to stand up there and you're not going to be able to go to the bathroom or, and you're going to hold the floor to make everyone listen to you so that if you perceive an injustice and what's happening in government, you can call attention to it. I didn't realize that that wasn't necessarily the actual memories connected to the origin of the filibuster, that the founding fathers were terribly concerned. A simple majority should be enough to pass legislation. And they did not have that form of filibuster. And that the origin of the filibuster, as recounted by Adam Gentleson in his book, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Kill Switch, that it actually started with a connection to slavery. He writes, the reason the framers set the threshold in a simple majority is that they wrote the constitution to replace the Articles of Confederation, which they saw as a disaster because it required a supermajority of Congress to pass 
most major legislation. The filibuster did not emerge until the framers died. Its leading innovator was the South Carolinian John C. Calhoun, seeking to protect slave owners against abolitionism. Calhoun envisioned a Senate where the, this powerful pro-slavery minority would not just have the voice, but would have a veto. To advance his vision, he created and forged the talking filibuster, which we think of as Jimmy Stewart enacting popular imagination, marrying lofty defenses of minority rights with long-winded speeches. Radical as it was, the talking filibuster could only delay bills since its practitioners eventually had to yield the floor. And so votes remained majority rule until the 20th century. The supermajority threshold now associated with the filibuster emerged in the Jim Crow era, where when Southern Southerners used it to stop civil rights legislation. And it was only used to stop civil rights legislation. In 1917, the Senate created Rule 22 to terminate successful filibustering by having a vote to say, we'll end it so that with something called closure or cloture, so that 60 senators would be required to pass the legislation to kind of move things along and get things going. Majority rule votes remain the norm for all other legislation besides civil rights legislation. But filibustering Southerners made this step of cloture and its supermajority threshold the standard for just the dozen or so civil rights bills that passed the House and came before the Senate. I wanna point out that often they were Democrats, and sometimes they would even have the majority. So it wasn't just a partisan thing of going back and forth. It was specifically intended to preserve Jim Crow, prevent civil rights, and in a sense, preserve the legacy of slavery. That was part of the memory of this institution that continues. From the end of Reconstruction until 1964, the filibuster killed only civil rights bills. And after cloture was finally used to break a Southern filibuster in 1964, something unexpected happened. The filibuster and this new idea of a supermajority of 60 senators being required became normalized and streamlined to make the Senate's expanding workload more manageable. And soon as it is practiced today, any Senator could invoke the supermajority threshold of 60 simply by registering an objection which today can be done by email. Today, nearly every bill in the Senate faces it and therefore must clear 60 votes. We are in a process in our country of realizing that the history we know has a connection to slavery and that those memories were eliminated. So you might be saying to me, so Nadav, what you're saying is we should get rid of the filibuster because it was connected to slavery. And then you're going to say, well, we should get rid of this because it was connected to slavery. And we should get rid of the Constitution because it was connected to slavery. And I think that that names the anxiety and the fear that many people in this country naturally and correctly fear when we talk about reconnecting the memories of slavery to the institutions that were created and continue in this country. They think that what you're saying is anarchism. You're saying you're anti-America if you're going to bring this up. But in Judaism, bringing up the memory of slavery is certainly not anarchistic. And it's also not simple. In each case that I said before, I said memory is connected to an action that you have to take in this world. 
so much so that we can force God to do it on Rosh Hashanah and change judgment. But it's not always clear what the actions necessarily are that flow from the memory. We know that our entire tradition now is based, whether it's keeping Shabbat, whether it's bringing your first fruits to the temple, whether it is most of the laws, what it seems in Torah, is connected to the memory of slavery, but the actions translate into a much broader vision. I was interested this week to remember a teaching that came from Rabbi Shlomo Karlabach of Tainted Memory, in which I remember his teaching where he said, eliminating slavery returns human beings to their natural state of being in the image of God, because it is unnatural to oppress and enslave someone who is in the image of God and all human beings are. But Torah is teaching us that the action associated with the memory is not merely eliminating the slavery, is not merely returning us to our natural state. It has another purpose in mind. When he was in the former Soviet Union to give a concert, he was interviewed on Russian television. And he was asked, in a world of such tragedy, war and oppression, do you believe in God? Do you believe in the fulfillment of your dreams? And he said, a little. And they said, a little rabbi, what do you mean a little? So you don't believe God answers prayers? And he said to them, listen to the phrasing of your question. You asked, does God make my dreams come true? I realize that my dreams are small. I have seen things in my lifetime I never even would have dreamed. The goal of what we're supposed to do with the memory of oppression is to make God's dream come true. It's to fulfill what's coming next in the Torah, the elucidation and revelation of God's dream for us. The institution and the connection to memory and slavery is to take action in this world to make that dream come true. I sometimes have the anxiety that when we bring up the connection of our own history to slavery, meaning in America, that it, it puts me on edge because I feel like it's saying do away with America. And yet what we're being called to do is to have the dream of America and to redream America and to figure out what God's dream for our country is. What could God's dream for America be so that we can take action toward it?